Welcome to The Stumbling Spirit, Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. Whether you realize it or not, you are resilient. It's your birthright. As you take in your next breath, know this truth. It's not only about your capacity to overcome difficult situations, but it's about your courage to do the necessary work to heal, learn, grow, and move forward. What you gain is invaluable wisdom. And it's through these hard stumbles in life that we often discover a new purpose that aligns with our spirit. My name is Fabio De Silva Fernandez, Reiki master, mindfulness coach, and mystical explorer. Join me weekly as the Stumbling Spirit podcast highlights the lives of extraordinary people like you, sharing transformative stories and beneficial practices of resilience to guide you on your wellness journey. Have you ever thought of moving to paradise and starting a retreat? Well, Drew Hume did just that with the creation of Navina, a Thai yoga therapy center in the lush rainforest of Costa Rica, where he teaches this particular modality of massage and touch literacy to small groups of practitioners in training. In between classes and nature hikes, Drew is a beekeeper and produces his own honey. His dream come reality did not come overnight. Drew joins us from Costa Rica to talk about his journey, the importance of human connection, and what he calls the art of compassionate touch. It's my pleasure to welcome Drew Hume. Hi, Drew. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Fabio. Thanks for having me. Why is touch important? Touch is important for so many different reasons. Um, It's something that we get into at the beginning of pretty much every course or workshop that I teach that we as humans are deeply biologically hardwired for touch. It's the only sense that we can't live without, at least on some part of our body. It's something that when we make physical contact with one another, when we use that sense of touch, it helps to develop our sense of compassion. It creates bonds between people. There's a lot of biochemistry surrounding the process of touch and and the biology of touch that really just connects us and brings us together and is essential for for human development, really. So when you talk about touch literacy, what does that mean? When we talk about touch literacy, it's because as a culture or as a series of cultures, we have come far away from our roots in nature. So what I mean by that is as time has gone on and as other influences has have come in from the outside and led us to believe certain things, what has happened in various areas of the world and in various cultures is that we have started to touch less and less and less. And just like with any language, when we stop using the language or when we use it less and less, we become less and less literate in that language. And so I position touch as the principal language that we're all born with and that we all have the capacity to use and that mostly we've forgotten across generations. And so when I take people through these trainings for for Thai massage or Thai-inspired manual therapy, one of the things we talk about is not just the execution of the the technique, not just the, the X, Y, Z of how to do all of these things in a massage, but also how important it is to approach touch as a language, as a conversation, as something much more intricate, much more nuanced than we can oftentimes put into words and yet it's still communicated through touch. And so when we talk about building touch literacy, it's the idea of coming back to this language that we've sort of collectively forgotten 
for a large part. And so we are trying to relearn a language that we are really hardwired for. It's interesting because I would imagine that there are different levels of touch literacy that exists across the world based on culture, based on locale, whether we live in urban spaces or rural spaces. When I think about that, I wonder why is it that in a city like Toronto, where I live, that there's this concept of personal space? What is that? Yeah, it's that's a good question. I'm not really sure where that comes from, that concept of personal space. It's definitely something that we've introduced, I think probably as a result of this reduced exposure to touch and this reduced literacy in touch. And what has led from that is is touch that's undesirable in certain contexts and you know events that leave people feeling not so great or you know in other cases traumatic events surrounding touch. And so I think we've introduced this idea of personal space as a way to build protection around us instead of what I believe to be something more useful is to teach people how to use the tool. So part of the intent with rebuilding our touch literacy is, is, is this idea of relearning a tool that we biologically have and need to use because we can't thrive past infancy without touch. And yet it's difficult for us to approach that because we've oftentimes put space in between one person and another in order to in some way protect ourselves from it. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I wonder if people are happier if there is a better awareness or understanding of touch literacy. What are your thoughts on that? I tend to believe that because if we look at, you know, there are these global scales of happiness per country that we can see. And most often that doesn't necessarily line up with the other things that we believe to build happiness, like access to money and shelter and things like that. It doesn't necessarily follow those patterns. We often see some of the countries that have the least amount of those things uh, being the happiest of cultures. Being here in Costa Rica, Costa Rica has scored number one on the happiness index for many years in, our, many years in history. In, in terms of infrastructure and money and those types of things, there's very little. And so it, it makes me hypothesize that at least part of that picture, certainly nature and warmth and things like that, I think are part of that picture as well. But I also think part of the picture is that there's more value placed in human connection and physical contact than in other cultures. And there have been some actually some really interesting observational studies done by a fellow named Daka Keltner and his research crew. This is one that I always tell my my trainees as well, where they observe a social interaction in, in different countries that's, you know, a standard sort of one hour between people in the UK, the US and Puerto Rico, and how in the UK, these two friends in the space of an hour don't touch one another at all a single time. In the US, they touch one another once or twice, I think it was, which if most of us think about, usually that kind of makes sense. It's probably a, a hug hello and a hug goodbye or something like that, something something minimal, although we might think, you know, that's a good amount. But then in Puerto Rico, they observed within the space of a one hour period, you know, 150 points of contact, which is just, you know, if we think about that, they spent more time in contact with, with one another than they did, you know, not touching one another. If we look at that and put it in the context of happiness, I, I think it's a really... Um, influential piece of the puzzle as to what really builds happiness between humans and individually. That makes sense to me. My background is Brazilian and in a general context, I would say that Brazilians are more touchy-feely for lack of a better term, more connected, physically connected in an intimate way that's non-sexual. I think that in perhaps 
North American society. I don't want to speak for the rest of the world, but certainly in North American society, when we think of intimacy, it's often associated with sex, but there's intimacy in relationships. There's intimacy in having conversations and resting your hand on someone's shoulder as they're talking or hugging someone. And so there's this confusion, I guess, around what it means to be intimate in a social situation. Definitely. And and some big feelings often associated with that because of this process of where we've lost our touch literacy. You know, when you get more words in a language, you can speak more eloquently, you can do more things with the words, you can string them together in various ways that have various meanings. Whereas when you don't have very many words in a language, you can't do too much. You can sometimes get by with the very basics. And I think that's what most of us are doing. We're just sort of getting by with the essentials, with the basics. And what most people use touch for nowadays is for sexual touch. That's a big part of what we talk about in courses as well is, you know, diversifying our language skill set and relearning all of the various ways in which intimacy can show up in a non-sexual way. Because you're right, intimacy is not just a sexual experience. There's there's intimacy in looking into one another's eyes. There's intimacy in that, that supportive hand on the shoulder. There's intimacy in those moments where a friend has been crying or upset and you don't really know what to do except hug them or place your hand on them or something. Those moments are deeply intimate as well. And I also think that to some degree inherently understand that but we feel big feelings around it and we're not sure what to do with that. For example, when we look into one another's eyes, there's a, there's a lot of groups that will take specific time to do that. You'll sit opposite one in person and you'll make eye contact. And so frequently what happens is people break down crying because we don't do that very often. We don't create that intimacy very often because we don't know what to do with the feelings that come up around that, recognizing that there's actually this full spectrum of intimacy as opposed to just one piece of the puzzle. But also it's this reaction of you see me, you're actually seeing me, you are noticing me. And I think sometimes in our society, as many people that live in this city of Toronto, a lot of people feel unseen. Definitely. I think that's the dichotomy of a city environment is where there are so many people around you, yet you feel so isolated. And I think it's because we we miss those moments for intimacy. We haven't been brought up in an environment that helps us to understand that those moments are really important. And I guess in some ways it's been exacerbated by COVID too, right? In recent years, you know, that sense of isolation. And so yeah. when you reflect on touch literacy, how do you navigate that in this age? Yeah, it's there's a lot going on around touch literacy in general because of the, the years that we live in. And definitely COVID has complicated things. And also beyond that, as more and more spaces become trauma-informed and we, we try to understand trauma more and more, that in a good way complicates the puzzle so that we can help to meet people's needs, meet them where they're at a little bit more readily rather than just sort of saying, you know, here's the recipe, go and go ahead and, and try it out. So I would say, you know, this in this day and age, the, the touch literacy puzzle is much more complex and nuanced than perhaps we once thought in, in a way that we once approached it. And even though it's even more nuanced and maybe a bit more challenging as a result, I think it's even more important because we've all had so many varying experiences that include touch that is maybe not in the most ideal of ways. Because of that, 
it becomes even more important to try and relearn what touch can be, how how beneficial it can be, how important it can be to build connection, to make people feel a sense of belonging and, and to create this sense of community. And your way of opening that door to touch literacy is through Thai massage. So can you explain to us what is Thai yoga therapy and is it the same as Thai massage? Yeah, it is in the general sense of the word. There are various ways in, in which we can call this practice of Thai massage and Thai yoga therapy. At one point, I used to say Thai yoga therapy a little bit more frequently because Thai massage in some contexts, like in the North American context, has a little bit more of a sexual connotation. And that's something that we are trying to step away from to teach people that there's a full other experience of touch to be learned and had. And in different settings in different environments whereas the sexual services side of things is something that is separate to what we offer that's why i would call thai yoga therapy what i used to do nowadays i actually more frequently use the term thai inspired manual therapy and the reason i use that is because the way that we practice things at Navina, at least is really quite different to how thai massage and manual therapy practices are utilized in Thailand and though there are similar roots. So it's an attempt to try and honor the roots of a Thai massage practice whilst also recognizing that we are modifying things, we're changing things, we're using some of the same infrastructure, but the application of that in infrastructure is different. So it's sort of the naming of the thing has evolved a little bit over time to reflect the roots of the practice and also reflect that it's not quite the same. Let's go back in time a little bit. So you graduate from university in Canberra in 2010. You graduate with honors. You're on the Dean's Excellence Award list with a Bachelor of Applied Science, and you become a lab technician at the university. When were you first exposed to Thai massage and what interested you about this practice? Well, after I graduated, I ended up moving back to Toronto. I had done a, a semester abroad the year prior as my second last semester in Guelph, actually. And then when I came back to Canada, I moved to Toronto to be with my partner at the time. Because I moved across the world, I no longer had any of my industry connections in research and, and the fields that I had just finished studying. And so I got into a retail job and was not really a great fit for me personally. So I started to look for extra things that I could do. And so I was thinking about, you know, what I might be able to study that in some way would utilize some of the things that I had studied at university and also get me working with bodies because I've always had a, a fascination with bodies. As I grew up, I played a lot of different sports and had a lot of different injuries. And as a result, I uh, got to explore in that way and really wanted to sort of help people with those things as well. So as a result of that, I did a little bit of searching online and didn't really come up with too much in, in the way of massage courses that I would want to dedicate the time to. The main one that I was looking at was becoming an RMT, but a lot of the courses that I had taken at university were the same. And so I didn't really want to go back for two years and repeat all the subjects and pay all that money to repeat the subjects because I wasn't going to be able to get credit. So I left it for a little bit. Another couple of months went by and then I searched again just in case anything had changed and it had. And I ended up seeing some Thai massage courses and I had never taken a, a Thai massage or had a Thai massage before. Then I reached out and decided to go in and, and speak to the teacher. And after speaking about the practice, that was apparently enough for me to sign up for all of the courses in one go. I look back on and I think that was maybe a little bit of a, a rash decision, but it worked out. It felt like, you know, in the first day of the training, it felt like 
putting on old shoes kind of a thing, you know, almost like I had done it before. And, and with the base foundation in, in human biology, I felt really well supported to go in and understand what I was pressing on and, and the effect that I was having. And then with that was able to, to sort of start to modify things a little bit. What was it about Thai massage that you really enjoyed? Oh, at the time, I think the appealing piece was that was that it was done on the floor. I think that was the really unique piece that appealed to me because on the table, if you've ever given a massage on a table, it can be quite a lot of work and you finish with a bit of a sore low back and things like that. And I thought, you know, that's probably not what I want to do. And so it being on the floor was quite appealing. So I think that attracted me at the beginning. And you experienced it both as a client and then eventually a practitioner. So when you were getting it done to you for the first time, what was it that you noticed within your body? I, I think when I was first studying and receiving, I think one of the things that distinguished it from other forms of massage and made me really sort of start to fall in love with it even more is how when you take time with pressure applied, it really gives your body a chance to create space and, and facilitate space. So one of the things that other massage modalities use are, are more gliding strokes. And with those gliding strokes, there's more movement. There's not enough time to settle in, to receive that pressure, to let the pressure take effect in your body and for you to sort of settle around that experience of the pressure that you're receiving. Whereas in time massage, we can do that. As I was in training, the more more and more I'd ask people to, oh, just, you know, just wait there. They would wait a little longer and wait a little longer. And then at the end, I'd be like, oh, yeah, like that is the massage that I've wanted forever. And is that the main difference between Thai massage and regular massage? It can be. It really depends on the avenue of practice that you take with Thai massage because there are so many different styles of massage in Thailand. Some of them do have oils included in them. Some of them have a bit of tapping included in them. Some of them have various other tools that you can use. Some of them are, are on tables or on the ground. The way that we practice, yes, I would say that's one of the biggest distinguishing factors is that we're fully clothed, no oils and on the ground. But that's not the only way to practice time massage, essentially. And so as a practitioner, what are the things that you enjoy about doing this modality? I really love, I really appreciate how the practice is good to give as in you can give the practice and still and feel at the end of the session that you are not drained that it didn't take things from you that you weren't willing to give and so it feels a lot more sustainable it feels like it can be done for forever as needed and for me that's really important to know that i'm stepping outside of this idea of i don't have to sacrifice feeling good in order to help facilitate other people feeling good because that's i think a bit of a construct that we've created around massage and how massage therapists, oh, you know, they work so hard and their joints and things break down in a handful of years after they start. I really want to avoid that and teach people and practice in a way that is sustainable. Well, I have to say that I did get a massage from you years ago. And quite honestly, it was the best massage I'd ever had. I'm glad. At some point you decide to make Canada your, your place of residence, right? So what led to that? Well, once I had started my Thai massage journey, I began to teach for my teacher very quickly. And then after that, I separated out and started to write curriculum for Navina, and which is now my school and retreat center. And with that, 
I had to open a business in Canada, I had to get established. And I started working out of a yoga studio at Midtown. And then things, you know, one thing led to the other, led to the other. And, and I found myself getting really well established in the city. And then about a decade ago, you traveled to Costa Rica and you have this experience of swimming with dolphins. Can you describe that moment to us? And was that the moment that inspired you to relocate to Costa Rica? Yeah, I think that was definitely a seed. So that was the, the first full day in Costa Rica. The day before, the night before actually, a green sea turtle had made it up onto the beach and was laying her eggs. And I was like, oh my God, this is a National Geographic moment. Can't believe my life is happening right now. And then the next day I went out to swim. I was a swimmer for many years, about a hundred meters out into the ocean. And I pause and sort of take a moment and look around. And then I see a fin, a dorsal fin. And I'm like, there's a moment where like my heart sort of stopped. And then I realized, oh, but there wasn't a tail fin. So I was like, well, it's not a shark then. So, and then another one came up right next to it. And I saw at that point, oh, it's a dolphin. There are two dolphins swimming up next to me. And it was just like, another National Geographic moment. I, I was like, oh my God, I yelled out to shore, there's dolphins, there's dolphins. And yeah, they sort of swam by and and I was like, no, don't go. So I, I started to try and swim after them, of course, way too slow for dolphins. And then at a certain point, they sort of stopped coming up. And so I stopped swimming. I was like, oh, you know, that was a really nice moment, but I would like it if it continued. And then after a moment, I turned back around to start swimming back to shore. And sure enough, they'd swum back underneath and come by again for another little visit. So that was a really cool moment. And uh, and after that, that was actually the trip that I started developing curriculum for Novena and a business plan and things like that. And within that business plan, there was actually um, the seed of thought of one day having a retreat center where I could teach, but also host other people to teach their things in the mountains, near the ocean, that kind of a thing in next to or in the rainforest. So that was the seed, I think, that was planted there. I didn't realize that it would be here in Costa Rica, but then after coming back a number of times over the years after that, it became Costa Rica. That's amazing. What does Navina mean? It means new, fresh, or modern. It's a Sanskrit word that I decided to use based on that meaning and how we approach the practice of Thai-inspired manual therapy to sort of bring a little bit more of a, a contemporary understanding of the body into the mix of a traditional practice. And so in that way, it's a little bit more new, a little bit more modern and, and those kinds of things. What are the benefits of your style of Thai-inspired manual therapy? I, I think one of the biggest benefits is that we take a lot of time. So over the years, my practice keeps getting slower and slower and slower and slower. And it's because I'm paying more and more and more attention to the responses of the body, the tissues, the nervous system, and things like that. And when we practice that way, not only are the results the best, uh, that they've ever been. But also what happens is people experience something that they've desired for a very long time. And that's the mix of intensity, but also deep relaxation. It's this really weird combination where usually you get intensity, like a deep intensity, but you don't get relaxation because it's too intense or it's like it's keeping you alert. But when we move really slowly, we pull that down into relaxation as well to combine these two in a really unique way. And so I think that's one of the biggest benefits over the ways that other people practice. I really resonate with that because when I reflected on when you did a massage on me, I remember as being both firm yet gentle. 
Yeah. And I think you can only get that blend when you go really slowly, because if you go fast, you end up feeling as though it was firm, right? It could be, it could still be really nice, but it, you end up feeling that it was firm. You don't get that gentleness that comes through after a minute or two with the pressure applied where your nervous system is like, okay, yeah, I can, I can be here. I can do this. I can settle in. I can even give a little bit more space. That softness comes with, with a little bit of time. Why is being in nature so important to you? I love that question. It feels like where I should be. It feels like home. And I feel like when I'm here, I have so much more capacity for everything everything and anything, whether it's the good stuff or the not so good stuff. I feel like being in nature gives me the space and the support even to manage and deal with things that come up that are maybe unexpected or challenging. I was uh, observing some of your posts and I saw the one where you hiked to a waterfall and another one where you were looking at the fruit of a lemon tree. And so I can imagine how that would be really grounding for you. Yeah. Getting in touch with the nature around you, I think, is so important. I also think that's a really big part of our innate biology as well. You know, we used to live in places where we were walking around barefoot, where we were in amongst trees frequently, you know. And so I think it speaks to some some deep part of our biology to be in nature as well. What is your connection with bees? Oh, that's that's another big part of my love here is there's so many different species of bees here in Costa Rica. There are also a lot up in Canada. But most of the species that people know about in Canada are bumblebees. Gorgeous. I love bumblebees. The species here that I talk a lot about with people come here are the stingless bees of Costa Rica. And there are 59 different species of stingless bees that, that we know about in the country. And I just think each of their own characteristics, their in some ways personalities, the way that they do things, it's it's not only fascinating, but it's like it's meditative. I can be around my bees. If I had the chance all day, every day of the week, if I ever got the chance to do that, I would absolutely do that. I'm fascinated by them and I love them and, and they just keep me keep me really centered and focused. When you work with the honeybees here, because I also have honeybees, the bees that do sting, you have to be so attentive to every sound, every movement, every pheromone that they're emitting while you're, while you're working with them. Because if you don't pay attention to those things, you could get a, a lot of stings. What is the main difference between stingless bees and bees with stingers? The bees that we're most familiar with are honeybees. And all honeybees have the potential to sting. All female honeybees have the potential to sting, I should say. The males don't. And those and, and the honeybees, at least the ones that we're mostly familiar with up in Canada and here, they build panel uh, panels that are vertical. And in those panels, they've got hexagons and they store their honey, they store their pollen, they store their babies, the babies grow there and hatch from there. But then the stingless bees, they all do things a little differently. They have inside their tree hollows and the boxes in some cases that we've made for them, they have Instead of vertical panels, they have flat disks of brood. And then the brood is entirely separate from pots of honey and pots of pollen that they make that might even resemble more along the lines of the Winnie the Pooh's honey pot, right? That he carries around. Like they actually have little pots that they keep adding pots onto all around as they get more and more resources from the, from the environment. Between different species of stingless bee, they all operate a little differently. They have different defense mechanisms. They have different mechanisms of communication. And yeah, just all really interesting to watch and learn about. 
So why beekeeping? Uh, I really don't know why, other than the fact that I love to spend time around the bees. I only take a little bit of the honey. I'm really not in it for the honey. I'm in it because I just think the bees are fascinating. And then also a lot of those 59 different stingless bee species are in danger of extinction. So I'd like to see if I can play a role in that. This year, I actually just started doing some colony divisions for the first time in three years. I'm pretty excited about that. They've gone really well. And so I can, you know, help to add a few extra colonies of bees to the world and then occasionally will benefit from a little bit of honey from it. I think it's really interesting because there's a real theme here of connection and community between what you've built in Navina and your beekeeping. Yeah, there's definitely some common threads there, especially also if you see how bees operate. The the eusocial bees or the bees that we're most commonly familiar with, the bees that live in colonies, are really interesting. Like even though they have a queen, we often think of a queen as, you know, the hierarchical leader of them all. But in bees, that's not actually how it works. The queen is really more appropriately named the mother because she lays all the eggs. But everything else, all of the operation of the colony is all decided upon socially. It's all worked out between all of the workers and almost has nothing to do with the queen. When the colony is ready to swarm, it's the colony that tells the queen that it's time to go. There's a lot of operation of the community for the community, which I also think is, you know, we could create some really nice allegory for humans and, and the ways in which we could operate. No kidding. So you start Novena in 2014. You offer both online and in-person courses and retreats. And you also offer principal and enhanced intensive training programs. Can you highlight some of what you offer at Navina in the way of certifications? Yeah, definitely. So after the principal modules, so there's we, we do the principal modules in an intensive here, but then in other places like Toronto, we usually space modules one, two, and three out over a little bit of time. After that, you're el eligible for the first round of certification after you've done some documented home practice and an online exam. And then the enhanced modules build on that. They expand your practice. They take the practice in different directions, give you more tools, but also give you more things to think about. And then there's another layer of certification on top of that. And so, yeah, we do some intensive format trainings down here and we do a little bit more spaced out format trainings up in Canada and in other places in the world too. So what is the proportion of what is taught? So you have theory and then you have practice and then I guess you have your homework, right? So could you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, definitely. So module one is definitely the, the module with the most theory with the most talking with the most text with the most sort of digging through that information and setting the foundation first and then from there per module it gets to be a little less talk a little more practice for the vast majority once we get into the enhanced courses it is a good mix of theory and practice because we're often introducing some new ideas and concepts like for example working with something that we call the myofascia as opposed to sinking into the muscle we we're utilizing angles and different ways to pull on tissue in our treatments and so with that it's good to understand the tissues that you're working with and how to direct a little bit more attention in those directions so i would say all in all the first module is probably 60% theory and 40% practice. And then from there on, it gets to be more and more practice as time goes on. And then per module, we do 10 practice sessions as your sort of homework. So after you do the principal intensive, you've done three modules. That means 30 documented practices in order to be able to then sit the exam to get certified. And now Navina is not only you, but a team of practitioners, right? Yeah. And, and some educators too. I've got a little team of educators who are out there teaching the things as well. Teaching not only in Costa Rica, but in Canada, 
the UK yeah. and Germany. Yes, exactly. When you think back at the last 12 years of you practicing Thai massage, and I guess you've been teaching for 11, what do you reflect on over this period of time, having gone through all of this and having built what you created? It's funny. I probably should take more moments of reflection. I don't tend to do it too often, but the, the moments when they do happen, there's a little bit of disbelief in there of like how I've landed to where I've landed now. I think if you had told me 12 years ago, this is where I'd be and this is what I'd be doing. I think it'd be, I'd, I'd probably laugh a little bit, but um, yeah, I think I reflect a lot on both the big challenges and also the big victories, I would say, of mostly overcoming those big challenges and sort of heading through into the next phase of this. Could you share with us what the next phases are? Yeah. Definitely. At the moment, a couple of the bigger things coming up are an, actually an expansion of Novena. A friend just bought the next plot of land just up from us, and we're going to be expanding the accommodations into that space as well. We're going to be building a pool. The new accommodations are going to have bathrooms in the units themselves with a little shared kitchen, which could be both for retreats or longer term rental and things like that. So that's one of the challenges and also victories that we're moving through at the moment. And then another one is adding a little bit of adventure tourism into the mix. And another friend and I are building a business of canyoning. The waterfalls that go by us here are just stunning and, and there are a bunch of them. So we've organized to, to start building a little system of tours to take people down and, and rappel down the waterfalls in this system to go past the center and then out the bottom of the mountain. How amazing is that? Yeah, it's pretty fun. We just did the first few descents the other day, actually, after having talked about it, planned, planned it out and started the process about six months ago. We just got our rappelling gear. And so we're going to be out there playing a little bit over the next little while. That's great. So you talk about the new phase, but could you describe your existing space? What does your existing space look like right now? We have a central gathering space where we eat all of our meals. It's where the kitchen is attached to. Uh, and then around that, we've got these tent platforms. You can see behind me, these tent platforms with custom built tents. So it's a, it's a glamping setup, um, some nice beds inside, electricity to each of the platforms, some little shelves that you can unpack your stuff in, those, those kinds of things. And then we have some shared bathroom blocks down through that way. There's the main bathroom block there where we've got three showers and three toilets. And then um, there's a couple other bathroom blocks around the center. And then over the far side, there's the training and movement platform, and that's where most of the, the stuff happens. One thing that people should know is that you built this place with your own hands. I definitely had a lot of help, but I, uh, I was here for a good portion of the build and, uh, and helped out with whatever I could. So how did you go about doing that? Because it took a number of years. What were the considerations that you needed to factor in to make this happen? There were a lot. I would say I learned a lot on the fly with all of that because also at the time I didn't speak Spanish. So it was doing all of that in a language that I didn't speak. Thankfully, now I do. I've managed to pick it up over the last few years. But back then it was the coordination of learning new systems. You know, everything in Costa Rica works a little differently all the way down to how businesses report their taxes and things like that. So I would have to learn all of those things and then figure out how to get the construction team what they needed when they needed it. Thankfully, they were reasonably self-sufficient with that. And I had connections that were able to help me translate through all of that. But um, yeah, I, it was the land purchase process was actually quite easy. Interestingly enough, I think Costa Rica makes it really quite easy to invest in their country. And then from there, 
it's maybe a little bit more complex as as time goes on and and as you learn more and more of the things that you need. <laughs> Did you reflect on what kinds of materials you used to build your retreat center? One of the help, really helpful things that I did before building was I actually uh, rented another space. And the space that I rented was only six or seven years old, but they had used bamboo and things like that. And even though it was treated, it was already after five years rotting and needed to be replaced. And so there were there were a lot of things that I learned from that process. They also, with their platforms, they dug away the earth and built the platforms without really then measuring or, or modifying or reading the the land. So what happened is with the rainy season, there's a lot of water that falls. Erosion patterns change if you haven't planned things very well. And so it ended up destabilizing a lot of the infrastructure there, even after five or six years. And so with that, I did get to learn a lot about the ways that I wouldn't do things and the materials that I didn't want to use. So what materials did you use? Ended up using some some quite thick gauge steel, some cement, things that are going to last a long period of time. And then part of it as well wasn't just materials, but also the design. So one of the main design elements was the cantilevered platforms. So all the platforms are leveraged out from a high point, basically, instead of cutting away the earth and modifying the erosion patterns caused by the rain. For anyone who wants to do a similar thing, what advice would you have for them? I would say be ready to learn and do things that you never think you'll need to do yet. And also don't assume that the simple things where you're from are going to be the simple things here. Things like opening a bank account for a business in Canada is, I would say at this point, is a very easy task. Whereas opening a bank accounts here in Costa Rica, I just opened some more for the canyoning business the other, the other month. And for the first day I was in the bank for four hours. And the second day I was in the bank for five hours to open business accounts. Don't anticipate things. Just know that you'll need to learn new things and then don't expect that things will, will happen quickly. And then if they do, it's great. Because then other things that you anticipate will take a long time, take no time at all. What about from a financial perspective? Because no doubt this would have cost you quite a bit of money. So what could people expect or what would you recommend for anyone who wanted to open up such a venture just from purely, you know, dollars and cents? From dollars and cents, one of the biggest things that I would suggest is actually spend time here first or spend time wherever you want to be first. Get to know the people because then anything you do invest is much more likely to be a price of what everyone else here is paying as opposed to a price of someone who just comes in and hasn't spent any time here. So one of the, the things that saved me quite a lot was having spent a year renting another space, getting a team member who was then able to help find this property and I got a really good price for the property as a result. But then also things like the construction teams, spend some time getting to know your construction team, talk to them, see the work that they're doing, get quotes from various different people. And doing that and build a relationship with them is also going to save you money in the long run, because once you've got a relationship with them, they're more likely to take better care. Much of what we talked about besides your business was really around connection and people being a lot more literate as far as touch is concerned. What is your hope for the future of humanity? My hope in that regard is to, to help us step out of the societal constructs that we have been brought up within and also to retrain ourselves to relearn that language of touch so that we can become more reconnected with one another and also with the things around us, with nature around us. What does resilience mean to you? Well, resilience means to me persevering and getting creative when challenges come up.
What is your practice of resilience? I have brainstorming practices of resilience when challenges do come up, but then also beyond that, the practice of getting out in nature, doing a little bit of, I call it cold exposure. People who do cold exposure wouldn't, but cold exposure in the river down here because it's quite chilly, bringing myself back into the present moment through meditation and movement practices, as well as those little cold dips in the water. All of those things I would say help to build resilience for me. What's your brainstorming practice? Well, when I come up with challenges, so I sit down and I think of all of the different ways that I can solve the challenges that I'm up against. So I make it actionable instead of just a feeling of discomfort. And how does your practice, all of the practices of resilience that you have benefit you? I think it all gives me a little bit more space. I think that space to not only get things done, but also space between the big feelings and then as a result of those things, I end up not giving up because there have definitely been points along this path, various points. I, I could have chosen to not continue because of those things that I was up against. And so I would say that those practices all combined have led to me having these experiences, being able to, to work with people in the ways that I work with them. And that's pretty rich. How can people contact you and find out more about Navina? Yeah, anyone on social media can reach out. My personal Instagram page is just Drew Hume. The Navina page is navina.community. Also via email, Facebook, all those types of things are great as well. Thank you, Drew. It's an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for sharing your story. Thanks, Fabio. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to The Stumbling Spirit, Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. This is Fabio Da Silva Fernandez. Join me again next week for another episode of Transformative Stories and Beneficial Practices to Guide You on Your Wellness Journey. If you wish, you can follow and DM me on Instagram at The Stumbling Spirit. Until next time, take a deep breath and another step forward on your path of resilience. Hey.